Um, I'd like to queue up a video for you right now. Anybody watch Larry King on a regular basis? You guys? Any of you guys catch Larry King this past weekend? Uh, she, he had a, on a Christian artist by the name of Jennifer Knapp. And how many of you guys know Jennifer Knapp from way, from way back in the day? She disappeared about seven, eight years, went to Australia and came back with an Aussie accent a bit. You'll, you'll see it here on the video clip if we can, we can pick it up. And our topic for today is homosexuality. And before I pray, I just want to show you guys this video because it, it really brings them to very sharp focus. It's a two-minute video. Uh, it's a snippet of the, of the interview that she had. And so she decided to come out. Uh, she, just so if you guys don't know Jennifer Knapp, she was a very, very famous Christian uh, songwriting artist uh, back about 10 years ago. And she uh, was struggling with her sexuality, and she came out uh, recently. And, and the way that she did it was through a few different articles, an article and interview with Christianity Today, and also this interview with Larry King. Just ha- this is a couple days ago. Let's see. All right, I show this clip for two reasons. It raises two of the most important issues surrounding homosexuality and Christianity. One is homosexuality sin, and secondly, is it a worse sin than other sins? And that raises both those questions. The other reason why I show that clip is that it immediately puts a human face. And so I do that not to condemn Jennifer Knapp at all. I do this because that I don't want us to talk about the issue in just abstractions and data and theology. That there are people involved and somebody as winsome, as lovely a person as Jennifer Knapp. I think she's just wonderful. She's amazingly gifted, passionate, sensitive, knowledgeable, intelligent person. And so I want us to think about it in those terms and with that heart attitude as we think about this issue. Um, and so with that, let's like to take us to prayer. Can we come before the Lord? And, and Father, I say, God, thank you, God, for your word. There is um, just a billion things we just would not have any light on or knowledge were we only to have the silent inward testimony of the Holy Spirit. That God, that we would so distort and corrupt the things that we feel and the things that we think were not for the lucid expression that you give to us in your text, this sacred word. We ask that as we open this word that we would open our hearts and open our minds, God, to you. Father, but that it would be to hear all that you have to say, both in your truth and in your love. May we never divorce these things, and may truth and love go hand in hand, even as you admonish us to speak truth, and to speak truth in love, and bring those two things together always, for that we know is in your heart. And so we say these things to you humbly as a community who desire both your truth and your spirit, all that you have for us, God of grace, in Christ Jesus' name. Amen. The reason why I think that we have to address that issue is homosexuality sin in churches because even though the scriptures are very clear on that matter, both Old and New Testaments, I think most of you know that, the issue has become incredibly muddled and incredibly confused in current day society and the way also in Christian society. It's been a really interesting thing, thing to see in the last 20 years in the culture war in the way that the culture war on the issue of homosexuality has already crested over, at least in, in my examination of it. It's no longer as hot or divisive an issue as before, and for the simple reason is because homosexuality has gained wide acceptance in our secular culture. And when I look at evangelical Christian statistics as the way that the world has gone, so has the church. So that people growing up in this generation now almost see it in the way that the world sees it, that homosexuality is not a sin, it's not an issue. 
And the way that I've seen that it happen over in the, as I'm just watching the media is it has happened only partially through reasoned debates and controversy and, and on an intelligent level. A lot of it has happened through the media in just the way that media portrays homosexuality in the way that it was something that was very much, that was a, a very large concern in earlier media. And then over time, it just gained great, more and more acceptance. And I think about the show Will and Grace as it gave just a portrayal of homosexual life in all of its kind of normalcy, is to be accepted as part of normal human life, that went into... Just, I'm, I'm going to get extremely random here, because that's the way it's been. It's been like it's kind of everywhere. Is a, a Buffy the Vampire Slayer. I've never watched the show a lot, but then I know that one of the, the core members of that show uh, turned out to be homosexual. So the age started to go from, you know, Will and Grace level, the adults and then to, to kind of the younger people. And then uh, there's a new show, and please do not ask me why, that I've seen the episodes of it. It's called 10 Things I Hate About You. And the, the thing, interesting thing is about that is that now this one this that's marketed to tweens <laughs> is also now has a homosexual character on the show. And so it's gotten younger and younger. And it's just, for me, an extremely interesting thing to watch, that wholesale acceptance in the secular culture that homosexuality has gained. Because at the end of every one of those episodes, not that I've watched it, Every single one of those episodes. It says ABC Family. And so ABC Family would not have had this kind of uh, portrayal, this acceptance, but it has become something that has just gained a wide-scale acceptance into current culture. And so with that, I do think it is an interesting thing that we need to address also in the church. And I think part of it does surround this, this issue of the way that I have tried very, very much in life trying to try to figure out exactly how people go from solid biblical views in their life and then start moving away from those moorings and start becoming in their faith and what they believe in their faith uh, very much away from biblical doctrines. And by and large, as I track it both at a kind of a very high academic scholarly level and on, the, on, and on a kind of very much grassroots kind of personal level, when people move away from what is clearly expressed in Scripture, I have found that by and large it does not happen through an intellectual debate they've been convinced by an argument someplace, but rather there are things in their emotional and personal life which move them very far away from the biblical, what's clear in the biblical information. And that when they go there, then they go back, after they go into a kind of a stance that emotionally moves them away from Scripture, they go back into Scripture and they get very confused on the issue, not because the Scriptures are confused, but because they are confused in their own emotional life. It's, it was kind of amazing that even in this, the, the CNN special, the entire interview with Jennifer Knapp, there was a lot of talk. And so it, the whole interview lasted about 40 minutes. And I read the transcript. And so it's Jennifer Knapp going back and forth with this pastor, Bob Botsford. And it was just a kind of a, a, a not meeting at a, at, a, at a level of debate, actually. It was kind of just kind of different people voicing their opinions. So it became a big muddle. And then Larry King had Ted Haggard come who, uh, you know, had kind of a notorious uh, notoriety for his, his sex scandal, homosexual sex scandal. And his major thing that he wanted to say was that, I'm not saying homosexuality is, is sin, is not sin, but what's most important is that we need to love each other. And that was his thing that he kept on going back to again and again. And then at the end, the whole thing ended with uh, Larry King shifting topics to the, the other controversy and debate between uh, Simon Cowell and, and Ryan Seacrest. And that, that's how the whole thing was packaged and finished. 
And so it, it was con- just continued this model of thinking. And the thing is, is that is homosexuality sin never actually got addressed in accordance with scripture, in accordance with the church. And when I listen to people like Jennifer Knapp and people who have who are trying to maintain both their Christian faith and homosexuality, this is the way that I almost see always the tension gets resolved in this kind of fashion. She is a very intelligent and very sensitive person and I really uh, I, I really applaud her for, for those characteristics. She constantly she at, when she was younger, seven, eight years ago, when she was uh, singing Christian songs and writing Christian songs, her faith was very clear and her belief in God and Jesus Christ was very clear. And to hear her talk now, when she talks about scripture, she, the words that she said were very telling, I think. She said that, I have submitted myself to a church where they believe the Bible to be a sacred text. And that is very different from saying it is actually the word of God. Not just a sacred text as in Quran is a sacred text and the Bhagavad Gita and the Upanishads are all sacred texts. This is the word of God. And she talks in these kinds of manners as in the way that, that there are kind of many ways to God and Christianity has just become my way. And that this Bob Botsford, you have no right to speak to me. You can only speak to your own particular congregation and you have spiritual authority over them, but don't speak to me because I have a different congregation in which I have, that has spiritual authority over me. And there's something shifted in her mind and in her heart, and again, not to isolate her, but in this form of thinking, where it is no longer God who has authority to which I am surrendered underneath to find out his eternal truth and to live my life in conformity to that. Rather, something of such cataclysmic import has happened in my emotional life within me that makes me feel that I need to find the interpretation of scripture or find the church or find the pastor who will agree with what has gone inside of me. And it is the un- almost universally the shift, that's the way that it happens. So that it's not on an intellectual biblical level first, the m- emotional shift occurs first and then you find the church that is going to sign off on your particular move in doctrine. And so when I hear, so then uh, part of the interview and, and part of these different interviews, they are repeatedly, you know, uh, the questions come up. What do you do with these texts in First Timothy and in Leviticus 18.20 and, uh, and the one that we're looking at here in First Corinthians 6? And what, what, are, what, is, what is called by the homosexual movement as the clobber passages because they have been used that way. And when they talk about, and the universal response that I see both in the literature and in the media is instead of clarity being brought to light, there is an Im- immediate obfuscation, meaning that there is um, immediately the talk of there are so many different interpretations and the words can mean so many different things and no one is really sure and some scholars say this and some scholars say that and I'm not really sure what those texts say and so you confront me with the word of God but I don't really, I mean, who really knows what is, it is to say? You go to a church that believes one thing about them and I go to a church that goes to another thing about them. I don't really know. Entire books are written in order to not bring light and clarity to the scriptures but to bring confusion. And it's an amazing thing for me. I've devoted my life. I've devoted my life to bringing clarity to the Word of God so that I can go through the Scriptures and try to understand clearly what, I can, what it says. Not what I 
wanted to say, or my church wanted to say, or my denomination, or my seminary wants, wants to say. What clearly the Word of God has to say so that I can obey and surrender that and submit my will to that. And this reverse movement that I've seen as Christians are trying to hold on to two different things which I see in conflict is the only way that tension can be maintained is not by increased clarity, but increased confusion. What does, who can really know what, what this means? And so I want to go into the scripture and to bring a clear light onto this issue. Homosexuality is defined in both Old and New Testament clearly as sin. And so let me just read this here for us. Everything is permissible for me, but not everything is beneficial. Everything is permissible for me, for, but I will not be mastered by anything. And actually, let me, let me start out with the, the verses uh, preceding. Starting from verse 9. Do you not know that the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God? I know that is explosive language. That's why, that's why I pause. Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor male prostitutes, nor homosexual offenders, nor thieves, nor greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And that is what some of you were. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. And that last part is because Paul can never just leave it on the negative. And he's, he's going to bring it around to the positive and we'll get to that at the end of the sermon. But in, in getting there. I want to ad- address this question of is homosexuality worse than other sins? And so in one sense, let me be clear, absolutely clear about this. In one sense, absolutely not. Homosexuality is not worse than other sins and in this sense, in that all sin has been covered and washed, sanctified by Jesus. That's exactly what this text gets to. And so when it gives this list, it puts homosexuality right in with adultery, idolatry, other forms of sexual immorality, and then afterwards, the, the, you know, uh, theft, greed, drunkenness, slandering, swindling, whatever those exact, like the, the, the modern day word for that. There is a sin list here and all these are equally covered by the forgiveness of Jesus. And so is homosexual sin less forgivable by God? Absolutely not. Is it somehow more uh, uh, um, judicially unable to be forgiven by God. Absolutely not. That's what this, this sin list means and putting homosexuality in the midst of this list. At the same time, the scripture is absolutely clear that homosexuality is in this sense not more, not worse than other sins, but it is a sin and it is defined that way and able to be defined by that way by God who created human sexuality. And that's the meaning of the verses 12 and following. And let me read this here. Everything is permissible for me, but not everything is beneficial. And in all of your translations, probably, I think, those words are in quotes. And the reason why those are in quotes is because that was the Corinthian, Paul is now quoting the Corinthian slogan. In Corinth, that's what people were saying. Everything is permissible. I I can do anything now. And they they, they think that since now, they're saying that I've now been saved in God and Christ, and there is now a tremendous freedom that has been given to me. And so everything is permissible. And the reason why that's so interesting is that that is exactly the banner in which sexual freedom is put in our modern secular day world. Everything is permissible. 
And so this is something that Paul takes up and desires to correct. So everything is permissible for me, but not everything is beneficial. And he takes up their quote again. Everything is permissible for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. In other words, Paul is saying that, yes, everything is permissible. In other words, all of God's created good has been given to us for our enjoyment and for our good. Everything is permissible. We have freedom in the Lord. But that does not mean freedom in Christ Jesus and in the Spirit does not mean chaos. He says, freedom is given, but I will not be mastered by anything. Meaning that in all of my freedom to just to live as I desire to live, I have a master. I have a Lord, and that is Jesus Christ. And I express and exhibit and enjoy my freedom in this world, and I am released in my freedom under the Lordship of God who has created all the things that I am living in. So in every single thing that I do, there is a mixture of freedom and a covering of God's mastery. And when I am mastered by something else, So I say that in my enjoyment of something, in my pursuit of something, in my wanting something, doing something, engaging in something, if that now becomes my master and I'm enslaved to that, Paul's exact point is then I have lost the mastery of God and Jesus Christ is no longer Lord. This is Lord. And so that if there are issues in my life in which I am saying that I cannot think that God would not allow me to be this way or do this, that has now become your master and you have given up the lordship of Jesus. Everything is permissible. But I will not be mastered by anything. And he takes up this slogan now, food for the stomach and stomach for the food. That's also in quotes because that's something that the Corinthians were saying. Food for the stomach and stomach for food. But God will destroy them both. And this is now Paul's correction. The body is not meant for sexual immorality but for the Lord. The reasoning of the Corinthians, and it is the reasoning of our society today, food is for the stomach, stomach is for the food. And so that our appetites ought to be followed in however way that we want to. I desire a cheeseburger, and so I eat a cheeseburger. Stomach is for food, food is for the stomach. And so that what they would extrapolate that that into sexual uh, morality is that in the same way the body then is for sex and sex is for the body, And here is where Paul makes this division. And we can get into a lot of what this means here in terms of Levitical food codes. But yes, he's saying, God has given us liberty in terms of food. And so that you can eat whatever you want now. Food is for the body and the body is for food. And I almost hear the the, the notes of Jesus behind this in Matthew 15, 11. It's not what goes into your mouth that defiles you. It's what comes out of your mouth, meaning it's not what you eat. It's your behavior that can defile your body. It's what you do with your body, not what you eat. So the correction that Paul makes is that food is for the stomach and stomach is for the food, but God will destroy them both. But, and there is a but actually in the original text, the body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. To the Corinthians and to the world and the society in which we live, this is the correction that we make. To a world that believes the body is for sex and sex is for the body, 
Why not? If I feel these impulses, and if this is what I feel, and this is who I feel it with, I can act on that in the same way that if I want a certain food, then I can just go after that food. And Paul is saying there is an immense difference between food and sex. Those two realities are completely different in terms of what they do, in terms of your relationship to the Lord. And he puts that in the most extreme terms by saying, okay, food is for the body, the body is for food, but the body is not for sexual immorality, but the body is for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And so much is the Lord for the body that in these next verses, he starts to talk about the resurrection and says, by his power, God raised the Lord from the dead and he will raise us also. Meaning, meaning your body. God raised Jesus bodily from the dead and he will raise your physical body. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never. Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said the two will become one flesh. But he who unites himself with the Lord is one with him in the spirit. The header to those, that, that, those verses I just read, that the body is for the Lord and the Lord is for the body. That confused me for a long time actually. Because I get the Lord, the body is for the Lord. I get that part. The body is for the Lord. And because that, that for me is an echo of, of Romans 12.1. That offer your bodies as living sacrifices for that is your spiritual act of worship. In other words, God cares what you do with your body. Your body is meant to be given over to God as your act of worship in physical, tangible ways, in tangible expressions. I didn't understand what it meant, that second part. The Lord is for the body. So I get the body is for the Lord, but what does Paul mean? What does God mean when he says, the Lord is for the body? And the interpretation of that verse to me comes just a little bit later in verse 19 and 20. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You are not your own. And so that's the body for the Lord stuff. Your body is to be dedicated and given to God, but it moves beyond that and says, you were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God or worship God, give glory to God with your body. You were bought at a price is for me the parallel to the Lord is for the body, meaning the Lord gave his life for your body. So that when Jesus Christ purchased your salvation, this is something that we need to get biblical with and not philosophical. He did not just save your soul. And we talk about it in those ways that as Jesus Christ saved you, he saved your soul and your spirit. And we still have these strange ideas floating in our mind that has come in from the world and not the scripture that I have an eternal soul and so that when I die and go to heaven, I will become disembodied and that my soul will kind of just kind of float away because Jesus Christ saved my soul. And what the scriptures are so careful to maintain by Jesus' bodily resurrection is that Jesus did not only die to save your soul, he also died to save your body. He died to save you completely. And as he was raised from the dead, you also bodily will be raised from the dead. So it matters what you do with your bodies. Honor God, worship God with your physical body and so that Jesus Christ does not just own your spiritual life or your devotional life or your church life. Jesus owns you fully heart, mind, soul and physical body. And that 
means that you have been united in the scripture. You have been united, not just in some kind of spiritual, mystical association with God, but you have been united in your physical form, in your body. That's what it means that your temp- body is a temple of Jesus. That you have been united even physically, in a sense. That Jesus Christ inhabits you. So that what you do with your body affects your relationship with Jesus. And I know that we most frequently talk about this terms of your body is a temple, meaning don't feed it bad things. And I don't want to take that away because, so Paul is basically saying, be careful what you do with your body because Christ lives there. And so I think that does mean that if Jesus would not want you to just take in cheeseburgers from McDonald's and fries and high cholesterol foods and destroy your body, I think that's part of it. But more importantly, especially in relation to this text, He's talking about a sexual purity of what you do with your body because Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit indwell your physical body. It matters what you do with your body. It is a spiritual thing. What you do with your flesh is what the scriptures say. This gets to the second question. I'll go through this rather quickly, very quickly actually. Is, is homosexuality is homosexuality a sin, it's not less or more forgivable than other sins, but is sexual sin in some way more grievous? And I was trying to be as careful as I could with my language earlier. Is it worse? Is homosexuality worse than other sins? And what the scripture tells us is that there is a sense in which all sins of the body are worse, not in terms of their ability to be forgiven before God, but in the effect and consequences they have on us. And this is a huge statement for purity in verse 18. Flee from sexual immorality. All of their sins a person commits are outside the body. But the person who sins sexually sins against their own body. And then that's where it goes into do not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. What you do with your body sexually, morality, and I am including now what you do with your minds. Your sexuality is so closely tied and plugged in with your relationship with the Lord. It took me a long, long time in my own personal spiritual development to understand this because I did not want to understand it, actually. Because the reason why is that when I think, somebody told me a long time ago in seminary that that our centers of intimacy in which we are joined with another person are so closely linked to our centers for intimacy by which we know and are joined in communion with God in Christ. And something about that made me so grossed out that I said, that cannot be true. And the more and more I started to think about it, and the more and more I started to think about it biblically and scripturally, I thought, that's got to be absolutely true. Our hearts are connected to our bodies. God just made us that way and to our minds. And God did not give us two hearts. There is only just the one. It is the most precious thing that we have in our, on, in our being. It's so much so that Proverbs 4.23 says, guard your heart with all vigilance for full of, it flow the springs of life. It is that thing which in our being unites us to other people and unites us to God. And those two things are so closely linked. I went to a seminar once where people from uh, kind of a, uh, the older generation who, who only sang in hymns was giving a seminar on why that the music that we use in contemporary worship was not pleasing to God. And one of the reasons um, 
what was given was that that you know he and this is a very very knowledgeable man musically and scripturally and he said he said my wife heard contemporary christian worship you know from passion or hillsong and he heard of uh, he heard this she heard this female vocalist singing and and uh and she and the comment that his wife made to him was that she said oh that's just awful and it was a song like you know you're the air that i breathe or or you know or uh, you know you're my, you're my everything and I uh, love you, you know, love you, Lord, in this intimate way. And she said, that's just awful. And she said to her husband, why does it have to be so sexual? And I listened to that, and my flesh started to crawl in the midst of that seminar. Because I'm thinking like, please, please do not do this to me. Please. When I hear a sister sing in worship, and there is something of her deepest heart, which starts to flow out in worship to God, that to me does not strike me as sexual. I do not feel in any way moved in that way. Please do not even put that thought in my mind. When I hear that the deepest center, male or female, it is their heart of their being that is ascending vocally through their vocal cords, through the physical energy of their mouths and their lungs and their breathing up unto God. But what this person was detecting was there is an intimacy in her that is being touched when we come into close communion with God. That there's the absolute need that would be pure and redeemed and made whole and holy so that we can have pure relations both with God and with each other is what the scripture is talking about. And so that what you do with your bodies is important in what happens with your communion with God. And the verse here that's saying that, should I take you now, you all, who have been communing in Christ in holiness, and the word, and take you and join you to a prostitute, meaning the only way, the only way, the word aras, the only way that you could be taken in your communion, your soul union with Jesus, who is holy, and be joined in an act with a prostitute, the word aras does not mean just to take. It means to take away. I have to rupture your communion with God in order to join you in this act of which God cannot take part in. And so I say this to bring us all on the same field actually now. What we do in our sexual lives, heart, body, soul, and mind, has everything to do with our union and our ability to enjoy communion and fellowship with Jesus. It is not unrelated. That's what the Corinthians wanted so much to think. And so it is in this way, and this is the, this is the only way we can approach homosexuality. And so let me just take one last point with you and move quickly over these last verses. And I, want, I need to move from Romans 1, 23 to 27. And so if you would just flip just a few pages to Romans 1, 23, 27. And so let me, let me kind of just bring a quick summary to where we're at. Scriptures maintain that homosexuality is sin, and in the sense that it is like all other sin, it is all forgivable before the Lord. There's nothing that God does not wash and sanctify. That's the message at the end of that 1 Corinthians 6 passage. But there's a degree in which it can harm a person greater because it is within your body. It affects your communion with Jesus in a very direct way. And there's one other sense. Now, if sexual sin has greater consequences because of, the, of its effect on the body, 
which is meant to be given over as a vessel for the Lord, homosexual sin has greater consequences than other sexual sins. And this is the reason why. Again, let me, let me say this, and I do mean to sound like a broken record. Not more or less forgivable, not more damnable, but it is something in which it has greater consequences. And so let me read this passage here that begins in verse, uh, let me pick it up from verse uh, 22. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal men, birds, animals, and reptiles. Therefore God gave them over in their sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurities for the degrading of their bodies. And that is exactly what we're talking about here, the language, the degrading of the bodies of one another. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served created things rather than the creator. In other words, that's again, that all things are permissible. That I am going to be mastered if, if my creaturely drives tell me one thing, and the master tells me another, then I have a new master, which is my creaturely drives. They exchange the truth of God for a lie and worship and serve created things rather than the creator who is forever praised. Amen. And the reason why that I make this application to homosexuality, because the Bible does, because of this God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed indecent acts with other men and received themselves the due penalty for their perversion. Let me take, before I, I, I move to a close in this final point, let me just take a, a breather here and a breath in this very dark topic. Um, I know that right now that listening to the, through the eyes of, and ears of our society that I'm coming off as homophobic and also extremely judgmental. And let me just say this. Um, as far as judgment, there's a difference between judgment, judging, and condemning. The scriptures admonishes us not to condemn another person, which means I judge you and therefore you are beyond help and therefore God's wrath is upon you. That's one thing. That's condemnation. Judgment is to say, it's just are making judgments. This is right, this is wrong, this is good, this is not good. And all of us must do that, and all people do that, both Christians and non-Christians. And judgment is a necessary thing in which to live, in which to make any decision at all. And so that in that CNN interview, there were about three different occasions where I counted, where Larry King was saying to Bob Botsford, he goes, you're judging Jennifer, you're judging Jennifer, and he didn't have a response to say. Every time, well, okay, well, you're, you're judging Jennifer, you're, you're a Christian, you're not supposed to judge. You're judging Jennifer, you're judging Jennifer. Three different times. And I was thinking, darn it, if Pastor, if I was there in your shoes, I would say, Larry, but you're judging me for judging Jennifer. Are, are you not judging me for judging Jennifer? You're making a judgment on what I'm doing and saying that that's bad and that I shouldn't do it. We all judge. It's not judgment. It's condemnation. I am not condemning this person. There are judgments to be made. And they don't go in what we think is good or good. That's what the tree of knowledge of good and evil is. It's saying that God, you alone are the master. There is a created order, a created nature, in which you said these are the way that things ought to operate. And that is not for us to create. That is for us to find and discover and enjoy within your created design. And that's what it's getting at here. There is a nature, which when he's talking about what is natural 
and that is unnatural. And here, I, we don't have time and I don't have the expertise to get into all the nature-nurture debates over homosexuality. I am very much inclined to say, or let me, let me put it this way, I, have, I take great issue with a Christian world that says to homosexuals, just get over it. It's, it's a sin, and so what's, what's wrong with you? Just you know, pray and God will give you strength. I cannot believe that it is as simple or as uh, uh, easy an issue as that. I cannot help but think that there are some very deeply genetic and natural biological causes. Actually, I'm just not an expert, but if I'm not to close my ears to everything that's coming out of the other side, there must be some natural thing that is in there. I think that there must be. And the other reason why I say that biblically is because there are natural genetic causes to everything else on on that list. There are genetic dispositions that make some people more prone to being a drunkard, alcoholism, that's, that's in there. To some people who are more genetically predisposed to have an anxious fear that would lead to theft, which is also on that list. These are things that are in our fallen nature. And when this scripture talks about the fact that these things are in our nature and that homosexuality is unnatural, It puts them on the frame of worship, and so let me let me close on, the, on this. On actually, just two more points, if you allow me. Um, without getting too deeply into it, let me just read this one verse one last time. Romans one twenty three. They exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal man, and birds, and animals, and reptiles. These people who refuse to give God glory, exchange the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. And this is, honestly, I have to, be, I have to say, this is part of my theological reflection on these verses. And this is a very important verse for me in which the, what Paul is talking about, and he puts this smack dab in the, in the midst of the issue of homosexuality, which is why I'm bringing these two together. The image that Paul has in his mind in Romans 1 is that there's somebody who was born in their nature most naturally in their, if, they were, if it were not for the fall. We're looking at God and we're looking at the gloriousness of God. And that they now turn their back and exchange the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like, which is another word for image. So for images of images of, and that list the most prominent thing on that list is mortal man, which is made in the image of God. And so what, there is something so incredibly profound in terms of our human nature that Paul is saying is that we were made to look up at God who is the I am, the divine other, and rather we moved and fell in love with, exchanged the glory of God for those that were in the image of, in the image of, and that ends up being immortal man, which is basically us, which is people. So there is something very deep and profound when we talk about nature in this whole nature-nurture debate is that we were created ultimately for God who is the divine other. Meaning that God, in some ways, we are so much like Him. We were created in His image for for goodness sake. And yet God is so completely not like us. Does that, I don't think I need to fill that out too much. God is like us, but so completely not like us. And we were made for this relationship, and yet we turn from that glory, the glory of that, 
And we rather look to an image of an image of someone who is exactly like us, mortal man. And we are falling, what the scripture is exactly talking about, is falling in love, turning from God and falling in love with our own reflection. This verse, right in the midst of discussion about homosexuality, I cannot help but think that there's something very deeply rooted in the very core depth of homosexuality that says that I refuse to love someone who is like me but other than me. That's Genesis. This is bone of my bones. This is flesh of my flesh, but totally not like me. So, so like me, but totally not like me in male and female. A mirror of our very relationship with God. And yet, the desire to say, I refuse that, and I want someone like me, like me, exactly like me. And I will form my most intimate union bond at the depth of my being and center with not somebody that's different than me, other than me, unlike me, male, female, but someone who is exactly like me, in the image of me. And there's something about that which almost, I feel, conflates the expanding outward nature of God for all the diversity that's talking in the homosexual community and reduces that down to a singularity, homogeneity, a homogeneity. And I, I don't mean that derisively at all. I just, I just mean as far as like that's the term that, that's, that would be used. And that now what was made male and female and the glory of that expansion has now become leveled and neutralized into a commonness. That is on the Genesis terms, on the Ephesians 5 terms. There is something so profound in male and female in that it is what the Old Testament in Genesis talks about as me in love with the other, basically God, and this other who is in love with me, this similarity but difference, is now takes the specific form in the New Testament with the coming of Christ showing the very face of God. And so that that imageness of male and female that was to capture the, our relationships with, with God is now specified to Jesus' relationship with the church. And that is the mystery of marriage in Ephesians 5. The mystery of marriage is not that marriage is confusing and I don't, I'm never going to figure this out. That's part of the mystery you can. But Paul has something very specific in mind when he talks about mystery of marriage. The mystery is that from creation past, God meant male and female so that, so that you can image forth Jesus as uniquely the male and the church uniquely as the female, and you could image forth for everyone to see in this incredible bodily metaphor of how much Jesus as the bridegroom loves the bride and how much the bride loves the bridegroom. And putting Ephesians 5 with Romans 1 in the context of worship and the nature of our beings, this is again, this is a bit of theological reflection on my part. I cannot help but think one, that it is impossible to image forth the beauty of Christ's love for the bride and the bride's love for Christ, male and female, in a male-male or female-female relationship. It can't be done. But there is something almost, as I read Ephesians 5, again, this is some theological reflection, as I read Ephesians 5, I feel like if a great husband and wife Christian relationship, bodily even, you celebrates and expresses the intimacy and the union and the joy of Christ and the church in their difference and similarity, but their difference 
a male-male and female-female relationship can only celebrate, express ultimately, divinely, or whatever that is, the, the overarching context, can only celebrate and express man's love for that which is like me, meaning another human being. So it is not Christ's love for the church and the church's love for Christ. God's love for his people and people's love for God is merely expressing the ultimate expression of people's love for other people where God is no longer part of the scene. It is humanism in its most clear expression. I love and worship and am mastered by and master people. And God is cut out of the scene. Whereby Genesis, the, de- the design, the design was to create male and female so that God would be part of that picture. And the redeemed picture in Ephesians in the New Testament is that Christ and the bride is being imaged, male and female, so that God is always a part of the picture. And so homosexuality is not more unforgivable in any way than any other sin. But there are consequences that it has in the degrading, and I, I'm sorry to use this language, it is the biblical language, in the degrading and the corrupting and the defiling of the purpose for which God made our bodies for purity. And there are consequences in the divine and world of what, of what we are imaging forth in our created nature. Well, we are, we are at time, but the, the reason why I, I can't end here is that is uh, it's because Paul Paul also refuses to end there. So let me just read this one verse in in conclusion. In the Romans one six passage, he begins this way: Do you not know that the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived: neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor male prostitutes, nor homosexual offenders, nor thieves, nor greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And Paul cannot end there. God could not end there. And this is where Paul ends that passage. And that is what some of you were. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. By the Spirit of God. You were washed. You were sanctified. You are justified. This gives me tremendous hope for the redemption of all people, ourselves, for people who have a homosexual orientation, no matter how deeply embedded in their genetic roots, biologically it is. It gives me hope of a supernatural power that overcomes nature. None of us worship God by nature. It is a supernatural work of God by which we are washed, sanctified, and justified. As we go into prayer, um, my prayer would be that that God would just conform our attitudes in all of its fullness to God's mind and heart when we think about these issues and when we think about people who have homosexual orientation, that we may be as Christ in that same way uh, to them. Would you join me in a word of prayer? The word in... in this end of this passage in 4th Corinthians it is something we, we speak of uh, often and I think I've shared this often it's an old quote from Billy Graham that the 
ground is absolutely level at the foot of the cross. And we all come in, in our different brokennesses and our different wounds, different things that we have in our history, in our past. And that list where it talks about idolaters, slanderers, homosexual, adulterers, drunkards, greed, greedy, that list is not ex- by any means exhaustive. We each have a place by which we identify ourselves. The word of grace, which I believe with all my heart that God wants us to end on always. Let me read it for us one more time. That is what some of you were. You were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. And the hope that that brings forth in 1 Corinthians is that therefore you are a new creation. That means that not only is your mind or your soul being remade, your body <laughs> is being redeemed as a vessel of honor. For many of us here, I say, yeah, your innocence can be lost, but not your purity in Christ. Purity burns like a flame in Jesus by his washing, by his sanctifying work. Your bodies are redeemed. They are made new and recreated in Christ Jesus as vessels fit for honor, to worship him, to be joined and united to him. That would control all of your actions, what you do with your limbs. And so, Father, we come before you, God, exactly in Romans 12, 1 and 2, and say, Father, God, we don't want to just offer you the sacrifice of praise with our souls in some kind of just uh, disembodied spiritual way. When you say that a spiritual act of worship is giving and offering our bodies as living sacrifices, we want to be saved, mind, body, heart, soul, totally, God, in you. We offer up the redemption of our complete beings before you on an altar of sacrifice and say, take us, consume us all. May we be completely redeemed as whole people. Jesus, I pray over this congregation that God, that by your washing, by your sanctification, by your justification, that the power of the risen Lord would be in them and united to you would raise them unto life and all the things of life abundant. For we pray these in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen.